Welcome to Stupid Not Stupid, the official future podcast of a yet-to-be-determined micro-nation. <laughs> I'm Matt, so that means the guy sitting across me must be Jason, and we're about to argue about something. <laughs> Jason, how are you? I'm doing all right. How about you, man? I- I'm good. What are you uh, What are you drinking this evening, Jason? Uh, I am drinking a bourbon and Coke and a Tropicanon again. Uh, we bought a mixed 12-pack from uh, Heavy Seas Brewery. Local, I love local that place. Food. Yeah, and the Tropicanon is an IPA that I've kind of gotten addicted to of late. I have a uh, – I'm keeping it local too. I've got a Catoctin Creek Spirits. Catoctin Creek claims to be the second oldest distillery in the state of Virginia. I think only George Washington had them beat. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the the alcohol that they mix up is so old that they don't even – they don't. They don't designate it as a kind of alcohol. It's just spirits. It's just a clear <laughs> liquor. So. I've been out to both the the George Washington uh, uh, Distillery and the Catoctin Creek, and they're both fantastic. But I got to tell you, Catoctin is a whole lot cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> Something about being uh, an hour and a half outside the city helps drive the prices down. Yeah. Well, we just sounded off our drinks, so that means it must be time for our reoccurring segment. Matt and Jason are stupid. All right, Jason. So what did we get wrong from last week's episode? So this week is kind of interesting. Uh, it's not so much that we got something wrong. It's more of a uh, an oversight in what we were talking about last week. So we did our zombie apocalypse episode, and we talked quite frequently throughout the entire episode about the godfather of zombies, George Romero. But what we failed to do was mention what exactly George Romero did that makes him the godfather of zombies. Mm-hmm. So uh, just for clarification purposes, George Romero was a director, writer, uh, uh, producer of a number of zombie films, including sort of the first really modern era zombie movie called Night of the Living Dead. He did three more movies over the next 10 or 15 years, uh, including uh, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. And those three films are sort of considered his trilogy of zombie films. Uh, he then took about a 15, 20 year break. And then he came back and he did some more movies in the 2000s. He did uh, Land of the Dead and uh, uh, Diary of the Dead. And there was one other, I think. Day of the Dead. Uh, no, no, no. That was that was part of the original trilogy. Oh, you're talking about the ones later. Yeah, the ones yeah, later. I don't, I don't I remember even, what they were. Yeah, I I even, thought, Rise of the Living Dead, I think, is one uh, of them. That might have been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I saw Land of the Dead. It was pretty good. I have not seen the other ones. But the 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 trilogy that he did initially in the 70s and 80s, the, the three or 60s, 70s and 80s. He did uh, Night of the Living Dead in 68, Dawn of the Dead in the 70s, Day of the Dead in the early 80s. Those were sort of the standards by which all the other movies followed. I think it's interesting that you hit on the actually historically significant piece that we missed. And then the only uh, We're Stupid Edition email that we got on this, I haven't even told you about this. The only message I got was that it took us too long to talk about Max Brooks. And it was like disrespectful to him. <laughs> it took us so long to get Max Brooks, who was like a footnote in uh, zombie lore compared to George Romero. So we skipped yeah. over the guy who invented all of it. Right. And I literally got an angry message that it took us 15 minutes to get to the guy who just started writing about it. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks. That, one, that shout out goes to uh, Levi T. Alford. Uh, th- <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for writing in on that one, Levi. Well, uh, look, the, the zombie episode was great. And I'll tell you my favorite part of it is where... Uh, Jason declared that the uh, most important thing that you can do in the zombie apocalypse is find some peasants and get them under your thumb. That's right. Man. Yeah. You got to have minions. Yeah. We're going to get uh, T-shirts up and uh, get them on sale that just says, I'm not going to farm. <laughs> <laughs> That's Jason's slogan that. for the apocalypse. <laughs> you got to have minions because I'm not going to farm. Gonna farm. <laughs> <laughs> so that got me thinking, Jason. I mean, 
you're really talking about uh, in your dictatorial scenario there uh, about setting up an, an independent society, a nation, some might say. Some might. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You got to have rules. You got to have laws to keep all these people in line. That's right. Is that what defines a nation, Jason? I mean, what do you think it takes to constitute a country, a nation state? What, what things do you need to actually be a legitimate nation? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I would say that you need uh, some declaration of your status mm -hmm. uh, that arguably probably needs to be recognized by someone else, not necessarily everyone else. Uh, and you probably need some form of social order, be it laws or contracts or something. After that, I think it's kind of gravy, right? Like, you know what, Jason? You're, you're not stupid. You're actually pretty <laughs> close to the technical definition for a nation state, which in the prep for this episode blew my mind. It's yeah. not a high bar. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so these are the three things you need to actually be considered in the eyes of philosophy, not the eyes of international law right. uh, to be a nation. You need territory. Right. You need a permanent population and a government capable of interacting with other states. Interesting. So okay. th there's also a uh, there's also a fourth qualifier that is sort of debated, but it's also a, a consensus among not the entire population, but a consensus of at least a portion of the population as to who the governing body is. So who uh, does the sovereignty fall under? So for example, a dictator in your right. scenario. I was going to say, could that be a consensus of one? Yeah, it, it absolutely could be a consensus of one. So that's where it gets into the, uh, the uh, pseudo legal gray area of whether that's an important condition or not. Now, I would say that realistically, to be a nation, you would also need some way of defending yourself against aggression. So I, I think without an army or a navy or an air force of some kind, if you don't have really good relations with your neighbors, <laughs> that could be a problem. So we're actually going to cover this in uh, this week's episode because examples of this come up. And what, what we're talking about is uh, people who share Jason's disposition for um, a thirst for power, territory, <laughs> and uh, just the notoriety that comes with being a head of state. Uh, and that's our, that is those who found micronations, right. yes. nations unto themselves. So we're talking about unclaimed territory. Well, it doesn't necessarily need to be unclaimed. Some of these are uh, folks who secede from existing nations or attempt to take them via force, uh, which, which is another way, I guess, to fulfill that uh, original qualifier of territory that you need. There's actually a, a shocking number of these. Uh, now, how you quantify uh, the number, I guess, comes down to the, the bar, the threshold that you set for what constitutes a nation. But there are dozens and dozens of self described micronations across the world who meet the uh, three parameters that we laid out. They have territory, they have a population, and they have a means of interacting with other states, even if those states are just other micronations. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, they certainly exist. Uh, and this made me think about, you know, we laid out the parameters for uh, academically what constitutes a nation, but how do you become a nation in terms of, I guess, the mainstream diplomatic vernacular? And that is to say that you are a nation that could that could be recognized by the United Nations. So the next thing I looked up, Jason, is yeah. how to become recognized by the United Nations. Why don't you give me your best guesses? How do you think that scenario might go? And I'm going to tell you how it actually goes. That's fantastic. 
fantastically interesting. Yeah. I've never thought about this before, I don't think. Well, I you would, know, do you I know would, who else didn't think of it, Jason? <laughs> the person who set up the process. Right. <laughs> I would guess that it requires some percentage of the members of the United Nations to vote you in, but that, that's just a guess. I really don't know. Well, to, to be considered for admittance to the United Nations, all you have to do is send a letter. <laughs> Secretary General of the UN requesting admission. That's that's pretty much it to get into the pipeline. That's all you got. Wow. All you got to do is ask. Now, from there, you have to you do have to get a, a two thirds vote uh, um, amongst the admitted nations. Okay. And this is just for the UN. So we're not yeah. there. Are, there are nations in the in the world that are not recognized by the United Nations that I think many people would argue meet the threshold of sovereignty. So let's not say that you're precluded from from being a big boy nation if if the UN doesn't take you on. No, that's fair. Yeah. Um so you you need to get a two-thirds vote and you need to be able to um demonstrate the following that you are a peace-loving state, that you are committed to preserving the rule of law, and you support human rights and world peace. So your post-apocalyptic nation is out, Jason. Right. But it's funny to me because I d- I think most of the large nations in the United Nations don't really meet that criteria. <laughs> right. but, so this builds the case here of, I think, some of the micronations we're going to look at, right? If yeah. if those members aren't adhering to their own rules, why is the UN the club you want to be in anyway? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay, so I think what we're going to do here is the, the best way to, to get a sense of micronations, what they are, and if they're stupid or not, is just to talk about some and dig into it. So I think what I'm going to do, Jason, is I'm just going to go through a few micronations. Yeah. We'll review their history, their sovereignty, their leadership, their laws. And then uh, I'll say I support all of them. I think they're all not stupid. Uh, <laughs> one of my bucket list goals in life is to found a micronation. So I'm going to blindly support all of my micronation brothers and sisters. And you can try to apply reason, logic, and I don't know, Dipl- diplomatic uh, norms and tell me that I'm wrong, but I, I won't listen. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, let's see. Let's see how this goes. Okay. So the the first and possibly most famous micronation uh, that's out there is the Principality of Sealand. Uh, princi- the Principality of Sealand is not the largest micronation. It's not the most populous micronation. It's not even the strongest micronation in terms of military prowess. Uh, but it, it does have, while it contains no actual landmass, it does contain the most solid legal footing of any micronation, uh, putting it sort of at the, the top of the pack in terms of its legitimacy. So the Principality of Sealand is actually a decommissioned World War II fort off the coast of Great Britain. It is just outside of the 12-mile uh, border, the 12-mile exclusive economic zone that all countries who are signatories to the International Treaty on the Law of the Sea uh, agree that that is where their border stops. So after you're 12 miles off the coast of a country, that's international waters. Well, this fort is just outside of that, uh, of that line. And a gentleman named Patty Roy Bates occupied the platform in 1967 and founded the nation, which he dubbed the Principality of Sealand. Wait a minute. So he occupied it. He didn't purchase it. He does. He, what was his claim to ownership here? That finders keepers, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> What's like salvage law of the sea? Or yeah, it, it, it's in international waters. It's unoccupied. He moved in and no one kicked him off. Huh? It's his. And not only is it his, he set up a hereditary kingdom. Well, clearly, so it's a principality. It's a principality. So he is the monarch. He is the head of state. Uh, and his son is the heir to the throne. 
And how does the English government or the British government feel about it? So this is interesting uh, because we've established that sovereign nations do have uh, exclusive uh, rights of access and fishing and resources in the immediate uh, territorial waters next to their borders. Uh, the British government uh, moved into his exclusive economic zone and uh, the heir to the throne of the principality opened fire on the British government. <laughs> With what? A, a hunting rifle. <laughs> he shot at them. Yeah. And uh, as a result of this totally warranted and justifiable act of self-defense in the preservation of his homeland, he was uh, reprimanded and summoned before a British magistrate to answer for his alleged crimes. And yeah, you know what, And do you know what happened, Jason? <laughs> What's that? He was acquitted on all charges. Seriously? Seriously. 100% acquitted on all charges because they ruled that the principality was outside the jurisdiction of the courts of Great Britain. Huh. I am sort of surprised by that. I would have guessed because the 12 mile exclusionary zone is pretty ironclad but my understanding is that you know the the, the treaty also expands like fishing rights and other territorial activities out to like 200 miles so i may be mistaken on that but i thought i just read that recently it also strikes me that uh shooting at british like <laughs> government ships I'm not saying Isn't that an act of war. It is like, an act of war. I'm not saying I think that the British government would have been entirely within its rights to mobilize its national infrastructure, call up the reserve yeah. and bring down the force of its entire mediocre military complex. <laughs> or they could have sent the three guys out with hunting rifles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that would have been totally justified. But they didn't do that. They backed down. They lost the war and they have to live with the consequences. Wow. Now, this is another interesting point uh, that I think that we have to dig into with micronations is that because they exist outside of the laws of the more established and shall we call them mainstream nations, lamestream nations more like, <laughs> but they're also, you know, not a party to the protections and international norms that come along with that. So Sealand actually faced an invasion of its own. Nice. Uh, yeah, there was a secession movement within the Principality of Sealand. So uh, Alexander Achenbach, which sounds like a great villain name already. Like, what were they thinking <laughs> bringing him into the micronation right. with a name like that? Right. He was uh, technically the prime minister of Sealand, so subservient to the monarch, who's the true head of state. Right. Uh, but he, he was a high-ranking official within Sealand, and he hired several German and Dutch mercenaries to help lead an attack <laughs> on Sealand. Uh, they attacked the platform uh, with speedboats and jet skis and helicopters and were able to uh, take hostage the son of, of the prince uh, and hold him hostage. Although in a uh, not so shocking turn of events, because, you know, if you have the moxie to found your own nation on a decommissioned World War II platform off the coast of Great Britain, yeah. you probably also have the moxie to go full Steven Seagal on said platform. <laughs> <laughs> and and thwart the attempted coup. Uh, not only did he succeed in driving off the mercenaries from the platform, he actually captured one of them who uh, was a German national, and it caused quite an international incident. <laughs> he he charged the former prime minister uh, with treason, uh, held him uh, for a bond of uh, $75,000, sent a diplomat to uh, London and to Germany to negotiate <laughs> the release of uh, the prisoners that he held on the principality. And now this is where it gets into really interesting uh, legal grounds. The British and German governments negotiated for the release of their citizens being held on Sealand, which is another, in many legal scholars' minds, another recognition of the sovereignty of Sealand. That's completely insane. Also, 
if you're going to invade a sovereign nation, you probably shouldn't do it with jet skis. <laughs> I mean, Have you seen Waterworld, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and how did that work out? <laughs> so what do, you, what do you think, Jason? Sealand, stupid or not stupid? I got to say, you make a very compelling case, but there's this little thing in the back of my head that's just screaming stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's too bad that you think that, Jason, because uh, if there's one thing that I have faith in for you, it's your future earning potential. I know you're going to be rich one day, probably as a result of this podcast, <laughs> and it will comfort you to know when you're swimming in your billions and billions of dollars that Sealand is available for purchase. <laughs> I don't. I, I can't remember the exact price tag. I think it's several million, but right now, I, I don't know if it's on Redfin or how it works. But uh, it, it is available for purchase. Sealand is on the market. So you yourself can finally fulfill your lifelong dream of being Supreme Chancellor of uh, an actually established and uh, legally legitimate nation. I got to tell you, though, I'm not sure that I'd be interested in buying a nation called Sealand that doesn't actually have land. <laughs> <laughs> but Jason, you can name it whatever you want. You, Jason is awesome, Stan. I mean... <laughs> Okay, so Sealand, uh, the most famous, but for me, probably not the most interesting okay. of micronations. Well, it's fascinating already, so I'm, <laughs> I'm a little terrified to hear what comes so next. There, like I said, there are lots of micronations out there, but I want to talk about the micronation that got me started with right. micronations. The micronation that is closest to my heart, personally, <laughs> and that I find the most interesting. Closest to your micro heart. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the principality. There's a lot of principalities. Yeah, really I, I'm noticing thing. a theme. Yeah. yeah. Principality of Outer Baldonia. So the Principality of Outer Baldonia uh, is uh, led by the Prince of Princes, Russell Arundel, and was founded in 1949. It's off the coast of Nova Scotia. The Prince of Princes discovered the island while fishing and negotiated its purchase for $750 and became the sole proprietor <laughs> of the landmass. I'm guessing he wasn't known as the Prince of Princes while he was fishing and then negotiating. Well, it didn't, it didn't take long, uh, actually, for him to acquire the title. So what he went ahead and did uh, is he built a hut for him and his buddies to drink in during overnight fishing trips. And uh, one night during one of these drunken congresses, they convened and drafted both a Declaration of Independence and a Constitution. So, you know, I got to say, that's not stupid because our Constitution was also drafted by a bunch <laughs> of drunkards. <laughs> well, their Constitution might be equally, if not more elegant than the Constitution of the United States. And I'll just read you the opening preamble from their Declaration of Independence. Uh -oh. Let these facts be submitted to a candid world. The fishermen are a race alone. The fishermen <laughs> are endowed with the following inalienable rights. The right to freedom from questions, from nagging, from shaving, from interruption, women, taxes, politics, wars, monologues, and inhibitions. The right to swear, lie, drink, gamble. The right to sleep all day and stay up all night. Now, therefore, we bond ourselves to a new nation, forever independent of all other nations, and to establish on the islands and waters of Outer Bald Island a new government which shall be forever respected and recognized as the, the Principality of Outer Baldonia. <laughs> uh, first of all, now I think I understand where the ballpark comes from in the title. Secondly, <laughs> this really just sounds a lot like the He-Man Woman Haters Club from the Little Rascals or you know Calvin and Hobbes in their treehouse up in the, in the tree where they, they didn't let Susie Durkins in. But thirdly, as a nation, if your whole premise is that you don't like women, I think you're like this nation <laughs> takes care of itself well, in, in the order of a single well, this generation. Is, this, this is the thing, Jason. <laughs> I originally also was shocked and uh, personally offended and disgusted with the fact that the Constitution of Outer Baldonia excluded women. 
But when you look at the history of most nations, including the United States, there is a period of reconciliation in which we have to come to terms with gender equality and bring women onto the equal footing and plane to which they rightly deserve to to exist. So you're expecting a, a Baldonian suffragist movement at some point. And that's exactly what happened, Jason. <laughs> that's exactly me? what happened. And it happened faster than I think any other nation in existence has ever gotten together. So the first step that they took in the women's suffragist movement of Outer Baldonia is to declare that women could be citizens, but still could not set foot on the island. So that was the first step. And there are there are women who elected to become citizens and and joined and they are pioneers, Jason. They led the movement, <laughs> and their 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 dreams did not go unrealized because uh, within a few short months of the founding of the country, the Constitution was amended to guarantee gender equality, and women were granted full equal rights and access to the principality. <laughs> In a matter of months. What was the constitutional amendment process? I assume that you didn't need uh, two thirds of, or or, excuse me, half of Congress and two thirds of the states to ratify this. Well, I got to tell you, I I don't think that there was uh, much of a legislature structure. This was more of a a top down monarchy built on equality, which is a first of its (laughs) kind. Um, So just breaking that down a little bit, uh, any citizen who caught a bluefin tuna and paid $50 was awarded the rank of prince. Uh, and given full voting rights. And that, you know, the military also plays a very important role in the principality uh, and has a voice in in government affairs. Uh, There's a fleet uh, and upwards of, you know, people estimate around 100 ships. They're at the call of the Prince of Princes. Well, that's a Navy. Um, it's, it's a Navy. And uh, it's, uh, it's commanded and led by 69 admirals of the fleet, all of whom themselves are voting members uh, within the monarchy and uh, have input into the constitutional amendment process. So between the princes and the admirals of the fleet, they, they came together and voted for equality in a lightning fast timeline, which is something that I really respect. <laughs> I suspect that they were just really, really lonely and nobody could cook. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to some other interesting facts about Outer Baldonia. Uh, their chief export, as determined by National Geographic, who reached out for facts and figures uh, about the principality, was determined <laughs> to be empty beer bottles and rum bottles. Well, that doesn't uh, speak highly of National Geographic, who uh, recently was bought out by uh, Rupert Murdoch. So. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I, had, I do have sad news, Jason. Uh, the, the principality is no longer with us. This, this was very difficult for me to learn in the course of my research because when I first learned of the principality, I was very excited. Right. So excited that I didn't check in on it again <laughs> in the time between when I learned it and right now. But it was recently sold for one Canadian dollar to the Nova Scotia Bird Society. And the Prince of Princes retired and I believe relocated to Florida. <laughs> Where he is currently starting up a new nation. <laughs> I think probably Conk Republic, I'm guessing, is where he went. Yeah. This actually brings up an interesting point, and we're going to do uh, an aside here. Um, perhaps one of the more famous micronations that we're not really going to get into the history of is the Conk Republic. And Jason, you mentioned that uh, you think a, a military with the capacity to defend itself is a qualifying factor for status status as a nation state. Well, yeah, if you're if you can't get along with your neighbors, then a military is going to be necessary. So this is why the case of the Conquer Republic is so interesting. So this is uh, America's shortest war. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It, <laughs> it lasted all of one minute, and and when the Florida Keys seceded from the United States and formed the Conquer Republic, uh, mayor and I guess at that time president, so may, former mayor of the Florida Keys and president of the Conk Republic, uh, hit a Navy admiral over the head with a stale uh, piece of Cuban bread 
and then promptly sued for peace. Uh, <laughs> the United States agreed, and he requested $1 billion in aid in reparations for war damages and was not answered. Uh, unsurprisingly. Uh, unsurprisingly. <laughs> and because his uh, his terms weren't recognized, the treaties went unsigned and the conquered public, in the eyes of the citizens of the Florida Keys, remained an independent and sovereign nation for roughly, I, I believe it was four years before the Clinton administration uh, planned a military exercise to simulate the invasion of a foreign power uh, without <laughs> diplomatic relations with the United States. Where did they choose to undertake the military operations? The Conquered Public. <laughs> You're probably not going to repel that with a stale loaf of French bread. <laughs> actually, actually, Jason, actually, Jason, first of all, Cuban bread. Cuban, get, I'm sorry. Get, I'm get sorry. it straight. Uh, the Conquered Public mobilized six fire ships, uh, not ships that shot fire, but ships designed to put out fires with hoses, <laughs> uh, which went out to meet the incoming Naval Reserve vessels and peppered them not just with water hoses, but with loaves and loaves and loaves of stale Cuban bread. <laughs> And the reserves capitulated. They surrendered and uh, apologized for their incursion into a sovereign nation's territory and called off the exercises. So that just goes to show you, Jason, military prowess is in everything. You don't need to have a, you don't need to invest billions and billions of dollars into your military industrial complex to defend your micronation. Well, at this point, as a taxpayer in the United States, I'm starting to wonder if we should have invested all that money in the National Guard. <laughs> Well, that just goes to show you, Jason, that uh, that the military is in everything. And that brings us to the third micronation that I want to raise with you. And it's one I'm very excited to get your take on. All right. That is the Space Kingdom of Asgardia. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so the Space Kingdom of Asgardia is a relatively new micronation. It was, it was founded by uh, a gentleman named Igor. Ashrublii, and I'm sure I'm not saying that correctly. <laughs> no, it's close enough. And Mr. Ashrublii uh, is a billionaire visionary who is dedicated to preserving space for uh, peaceful exploration, scientific experimentation, and general harmonious commingling between all former citizens of Earthbound nations who would like to ascend into the cosmos and live in peace and harmony. Well, those first two ideals are actually encapsulated in UN treaties and, and other real world things. That third one is confusing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm actually I'm actually interested that that's the piece that you latched on to, Jason, that yeah. it's it's the space treaty that you went to and not uh, the lack of sovereignty in terms of territory. Aren't you interested in what space uh, Mr. Ashrubiai is claiming? Oh, I thought he was just talk talking in terms of an Earth based nation. And then, like, moving out into space. Oh, no. Oh. He, he has claimed actual territory in low Earth orbit that is the sovereign territory of the space kingdom of Asgardia. <laughs> okay. What space territory has he staked out? Mr. Ashloop. I'm not even going to attempt. No. Mr. We'll call it Ash Mr. A. <laughs> Igor. Igor. I Igor. Of course his name is Igor. Of course it is. <laughs> Uh, Igor has personally financed and with the support of his over 100,000 dues-paying citizens launched into space two satellites now uh, on which he claims sovereign territory on both objects or orbiting Earth. His plan <laughs> is to launch a fleet of satellites that will eventually uh, constitute uh, enough I don't want to say landmass. What do you even call physical space on which you can occupy? Well, as you said earlier, it's 
territory. It's right? territory. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, in which he can aggregate enough territory in Earth's orbit in which to migrate in a mass exodus <laughs> all of the dues-paying citizens of the space kingdom of Asgardia. So that's actually a subject I know a little bit about. And uh, the cost that that's going to require, the, 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 uh, the cost of, of producing that much territory to live safely uh, in low Earth orbit, uh, I think he's going to find it uh, pretty exorbitant. All right, Jason, well, I'm actually disappointed to hear you say that because I was actually thinking this would be a great project for you. <laughs> I've, I've spent some time poking around on the uh, the official tourist page of the space station of Asgardia, right. and there are a lot of opportunities. For a very modest investment, Jason, you can enter the nation at the rank of mayor, uh, and your voice will be heard. Um, you, you can weigh in. You can be on the ground floor of, of this. <laughs> uh-huh. What does it cost to be a mayor of Asgard. Oh, I, I'm not as rich as you, so I didn't look. I knew I couldn't afford it. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, how big are these satellites that they've already launched? Oh, they're CubeSats. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you familiar with CubeSat dimensions, Jason? Can you fill us in? Yeah, so a CubeSat is uh, a, a standardized sat- like micro-satellite that's about eh, roughly a meter by... I don't know, six inches by six inches. It, we're, we're not talking about a large piece of equipment here. So if he's launched two of those, and it probably cost him hundreds of thousands of dollars for each one of the satellites. And I, I don't know that I would qualify that actual territory, although, you know, I don't know what the standard is for micronations. But uh, you're talking about something that's like smaller than the size of an average desktop computer. That he's got in space. <laughs> yeah, it's smaller than it's smaller than the size of an average desktop computer, and it has an executive branch, a parliamentary <laughs> branch, a judicial branch, and hundreds of thousands of citizens. That's impressive, Jason. Uh, no, it's actually really not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how about this? Instead of well, instead of saying uh, which micronations are stupid and not stupid, which micronation do you vote to be uh, the least stupid? Which micronation are you most likely to buy into and potentially become a citizen of if given the opportunity? I got to tell you, Sealand has got a fairly impressive story, and they have with, withstood like international scrutiny and have won court cases. And <laughs> I'm particularly impressed that they're able to take hostages and negotiate. <laughs> they didn't take hostages, Jason. They took prisoners. It was <laughs> prisoners, an invasion. Excuse me. Yes, right, right. <laughs> you say prisoner. I say, you, know, you say tomato. I say tomato. Yeah. What is but, it? One one man's prisoner is another man's hostage. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, conceptually, Jason, where are you at? How, how are you feeling now after Micronations? And keep in mind before you answer, I've really poured my heart out here. This is something that's very important to me. Uh, so have I convinced you? Are you? Are we going to start scouring uh, the South Pacific for unclaimed rocks uh, or take a look? There's actually a piece of land uh, that is undisputed on the border between uh, Egypt and the Sudan that is currently unclaimed. <laughs> it's about 2.7. I don't envision any political problems with yeah. that. <laughs> no, it's, it's unclaimed by both nations. Neither of them have any interest in it. I was reading that there is a gentleman uh, actually here in Virginia who uh, is trying to institute a claim on the land has entered into negotiations with both countries. He doesn't want to occupy it. He doesn't want to do anything with it. He just wants to claim it so he can make himself a king so his daughter can officially be a princess. <laughs> <laughs> that's a hell of a birthday present, yeah, right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Uh, but I don't know. Are you, are you interested in looking into, the, into this with me, Jason? Should we start poking around for vacant land? I got to tell you, you know, we walked into this topic and I was really thinking that the whole thing was just going to be stupid. But paradoxically, what I'm finding is not that 
I find the concept of micronations stupid. I'm starting to question the stupidity of actual nations. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, all it takes is a coral reef and a bunch of sand. I mean, we can do this. Or or a microsatellite, or <laughs> I think the sand is probably cheaper. I I'm certain that it is. Um. So yeah, if we were going to form a, a a micro nation, where would you want to do it? Someplace. Well, obviously, Jason, I want to form a micro nation in some place that is uh, extremely cognizant of and puts us in a great position to be prepared for the zombie apocalypse. Well, yeah, yeah, that goes without saying. Yeah. So equatorial. Island-based, and um, I, I wasn't ready for this, Jason. You really, you really turned the whole thing on its head. Yeah, so I'm thinking, yeah, equatorial and island-based. That's probably that's probably my starting point and my baseline. Yeah, and for me, it's it's more about like stirring up the confrontation to make life really. Yeah, interesting, you're more of a so. Soviet-style micronation builder. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking like right here in the middle of DC. Yeah. <laughs> So th there are several of those that I found uh, in my research. There are a bunch of people who have te technically seceded from the United States and formed micronations like in their backyard. Uh, but I think the standard operating procedure of the U.S. just seems to be ignore these people. Right. Um, so well, I suspect as long as they continue to pay their taxes and obey the rules of the United States. <laughs> yeah, sure. You're a country. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Who cares? You know, at yeah. that point, it's just a First Amendment issue. It's not. So what about what about the head of state question, Jason? How are we going to do this? Who's going to be in charge? You or me? Oh, we can't have a, a bicameral uh, executive. That's I don't know. That's pretty progressive for a new nation. I think we have to start as a as a monarchy. There has to be some sort of revolution. One of us has to come out on top, and then we proceed. Well, I'll tell you what. If you put me in charge of the military, <laughs> <laughs> you can make all the rules you want, and I'll decide whether or not I want to follow them. <laughs> oh, this, this is going to go really well. This is going to go really well. Well, I'll say the one thing that was stupid about this episode is that I laid my heart bare for Jason. I brought him the thing that was <laughs> the most important to me, the dearest to me, my highest aspiration and loftiest goals. And uh, Jason wasn't on board. And, and that really hurts me. Uh, I wouldn't say I wasn't on board, man. I look forward to the nation state of Callahandia. <laughs> <laughs> okay, stupid, not not stupid fans. Uh, you know, write in, let us know if uh, you think micronations are stupid, not stupid. Uh, share with us your most creative names uh, for your micronation. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it, I'm, I'm actually excited to see some of that. And we'll see if either, you know, my uh, benevolent and wide-spanning pragmatism and general liberalism uh, will prevail in our future nation state or Jason's raw and unadulterated authoritarianism. Uh, straight iron fist, man. Straight, straight iron <laughs> fist wins out. Um, only time will tell. Yeah, we'll, we'll only be as strong as our constitution. Yeah, so write in those suggestions at stupidnotstupid411 at gmail.com. And get it in while there's still a free press. <laughs>